So has anyone, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but just a question to think about. Has anyone received an invitation to a Christmas party? And maybe if, if you haven't quite gotten to that point yet, uh, it seems like the season's just racing by. Think about past year received an invitation to a Christmas party, and you don't quite know what you're getting yourself into sometimes. You, you see this invitation, and it has a time that it opens, maybe a length of the event, and you think, oh, it says it's from 4 to 8, I presume that means it's an open house, right? That's sort of the cue we take from that. If you have both a start and end time, it must be an open house. It'll probably be hors d'oeuvres. It's not going to be a dinner and so on. Well, I remember a few years ago, I received an invitation to a party and it had times like that, but I suppose the host and hostess just wanted to be very clear about how long the party was going to run because there was actually a dinner involved somewhere in the middle of that and it wasn't expected that it was an open house where you showed up wherever you wanted. It was that you showed up at four and you stayed till eight. And so it completely threw off the host and hostess when I said, yes, I'll come to this event. And I showed up at six. Because I thought open house, right in the middle, that sounds pretty good. But I showed up right after the dinner was taking place. Whoa. You need to know what you're getting yourself into, right? It, it's good. And sometimes we don't always have the clearest cues. Sometimes they're clearer than others. And sometimes we're dealing with things that are so big and mysterious and overwhelming that it's all right in front of us, but we have to take some time to kind of pull it apart and think about it before we can truly understand it. Hopefully that's not true of any invitations you send out, right? The goal should be that when you send out an invitation to, to a party, you want people to get it right away, to know exactly what they're involved in. But how do you describe God coming into the world to mere mortal human beings? Well, we've been spending 2,000 years wrestling with how to describe that, how to describe the idea of a God who is three in one, that God is God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but one God. How do we understand the mystery of the incarnation of God's nature? These are very deep, deep waters. And so it is oftentimes when people are faced with trying to understand the truth about God, even when we're faced, if we've been in the church for years, with the truth about who it is that God is, we find ourselves looking at the invitation to come and adore him, to come and worship him, and we look at it and we think we're being invited to an open house for hors d'oeuvres, and we're really being invited to spend the entire day and have a beautiful Christmas dinner. We need to understand who it is that Jesus really is. It's not necessarily easy, but that's what God calls us to wrestle with. When we look at the mystery of the incarnation throughout the Gospels, it, it, it's overwhelming. But if there's one spot where we see someone directly wrestling with it and even willing to ask questions about it, it's when we come to the story of Mary. That's where we're going to find ourselves tonight. We're going to look at a couple of verses, four verses actually, where Mary is interacting with the angel Gabriel. And we come right in the middle of that scene when we turn to Luke chapter 1, verse 32. And when we get there, what we see is that the angel Gabriel has appeared to Mary and he's brought this overwhelming news. And he says this about this child that Mary is going to have. He says, 
He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. That's a lot to unpack. What was Mary thinking as she, she looked at that? How did she understand that? that it's a mystery to, to us as we have years and years, thousands of years to unpack everything that's compressed in that little statement that Gabriel says to Mary. But I think the first thing that Mary would have heard, the thing that would have been most directly reflected in this, because they've been waiting as the Jewish people for a long time for this to happen, was that the Messiah was coming. And specifically, specifically when they were thinking of Messiah, they were thinking of the one who comes and reestablishes the kingdom, like his father David. The one who will come and will continue the line that God had promised, because God had promised that the kingdom would not end at some point. He hadn't said to David, you're a great king, I really, I love you, and so I'm going to let you reign for all your days, and then the kingdom will end. He hadn't said, David, I appreciate you so much that that you're going to have a kingdom that's going to reign for several generations after your death. Your, ch- your son and your grandson and your great-grandson are going to reign, and then it's going to be lights out. He didn't say anything like that. What did he say? Well, let's take a look. Second Samuel chapter 7, verse 9. The Lord says, And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will, dwell and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be to him a father, and he shall be my son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure and forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So that's the promise that leads to the expectation of the Messiah. And we need to, to set aside for a moment everything that we think of as being Messiah now. We, we, we should rightly think of the whole picture of what we talk about with Jesus as being related to the Messiah. But, but if we're trying to understand Mary as she's processing this, as, as those who, who were expecting the Messiah, longing for the Messiah in this time, what they were thinking, they were thinking David's been pro, promised a kingdom, a throne that will last forever. In other words, what they're thinking is, David will always have a descendant sitting on the throne. And they were right about that. 
But if you only have that much of the understanding of the promise, what are you thinking? Well, you're thinking the same thing we would think if, if we said, we're no longer a, a republic here in the United States. We are establishing a monarchy. And pick your favorite political party. The descendants of, the, of one of the most recent presidents, you can pick whichever one. Uh, we can't because it's not a republic anymore, right? It's a, it's a monarchy. Someone's going to pick this descendant of one of the recent presidents and that son's son will be the president after him and after him and after him all the way down great-grandson great-great-grandson keep going and going and going that would be what you'd think if you said if if the if a angel appeared today and said and the president and the president's throne will be established forever that'd be kind of weird to be clear i'm not prophesying that i'm not a prophet not a son of a prophet. I'm not a grandson of a prophet. I am not a prophet, period. So that's not a prophecy. It's not anything that we should expect to happen. But if we did see it happen, that's how we would think, right? We're not expecting that someone has been promised eternal life to reign over people forever. And so when Mary hears this, this promise from the angel Gabriel, I think the first thing that she is queued up to hear, because she would have heard this, this promise to, to King David taught in synagogue she would have known this probably by heart and she hears this and she's going to be thinking well this is kind of amazing not kind of amazing this is incredibly amazing but it seems like what he's promising the key thing is that the throne is going to be reestablished, and what the people longing for that were, were expecting was a reestablishment of what had happened before king david died solomon king solomon became king king solomon died rehoboam became king and so on and so forth down the line until the last kings that had been able to reign. And in fact, they were keeping track of the genealogy, keeping track of who was a son of David, so there was at least some idea if someone declared himself king and seemed to become king, was this person legitimate for that role? It's one of the reasons why many of the Jews hated King Herod, because King Herod was only marginally, culturally, sort of kind of following Jewish custom at all, and he was definitely not a king, of, a son of David. He wasn't a legitimate king in any kind of Jewish sense, because the only king meant to rule over God's people was the son of David. So how are they, they to make sense of this? How is Mary to make sense of this? Well, I'd imagine there were lots of questions spinning through her head as she hears this. What does this mean? How amazing is this? How do I understand this? What does this mean for me? What does this mean for my son's future? That I didn't even know that I had a son with a future coming, but now I do. And, you know, all these things swirling around. But there's some other phrasing that Gabriel uses here. And... I think that she's going to hear this too. Let's go ahead and take a look at Isaiah 9.6. Beginning of Isaiah 9.6 says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Let's skip, we're going to skip part of it now and go to verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from, the t- from this time forth, and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That language is echoed in what Gabriel is saying as well. And you can see that if you actually go down, and we're not gonna, I'm not going to chart it out, but if I had a whiteboard here and I started writing down on it, I could point out, and if you look, just when you go home tonight, 
go back to, to Luke chapter 1, look at the words that Gabriel uses, pull, look up Isaiah 9-6, look at them both flip back and forth in your Bible or in your Bible app, and notice the echoes of language. So again, this would be something that Mary hears this promise and she's not thinking, oh, here's something entirely new. I, I didn't know that we were going to expect a king like this. Mm-hmm. Huh, isn't that interesting? No, she's thinking, well, this is what we've been waiting for. I just didn't know that I'd have anything to do with this. This is really incredible. And what it says is that he's not going to just be a king like the other descendants of David because there were some that were reasonably good. Most of them were quite bad. And so they were expecting the Messiah to be a reasonably good human king. But when you look at this promise, it seems to promise something more, which is that he's going to usher in peace. And it's not just a peace contained in this little piece of land. It's a peace that has a, a massive impact. So the first thing that anyone hearing these promises would have thought is, this is a pretty big deal. The Messiah is going to change the way the government works. The Messiah is going to change the way that the earth is ruled. The Messiah is going to be the good king. Not just a king, but the good king. Now, if you think about that, though, and you're still anticipating what I've said up to this point, that still implies that he's going to be the good king, but what comes after that? Because here's the thing we know. Every human ruler we've ever seen in the history of the world, at some point, stops ruling. Isn't that interesting? There are rulers that are ruling at this moment. They haven't stopped ruling yet because they're still alive. But one day they're going to stop ruling. And if you go back in the history books and look at anyone who once ruled and no longer rules, well, that means they stopped ruling. They always stop. What happens after that? And sometimes we don't really think about that all that much. I was struck by it this week listening to the news as all the commentators are trying to make sense of what happened in the Senate. We had lots going on in the Senate this week. First, we had the end of the midterm election cycle. So now we can move into the 2024 presidential election cycle, right? Everyone excited for for that? Um, But we're finally done with 2022 elections. Uh, We're we're done with it. And we know the composition of the Senate, right? It's all nice and settled. Uh, You're either really, really happy because you were rooting for... Senator Warnock to win re-election or you're brokenhearted because you were hoping that we'd have a Senator Walker next, uh, next Congress and, and now there isn't going to be one, but at least it's all settled until a couple days later. Then what happens? Well, Senator Sinema, Kirsten Sinema, announces she's no longer going to be a Democrat. She's going to become an independent. And those are all the questions. Well, how is that going to affect the, affect the balance of power in the Senate? What does that mean about her voting record? and so on and so forth. And one of the articles I was reading, trying to make sense of all this and figure out what it means for for our country over the next few years, looked at and listed out all the, the members of both parties who were in the Senate and left their party while elected. And here's something interesting about that. I remembered several of the people in the list. They, they've happened in the last couple of decades and something struck me about it. I remember all the consternation at the time when, for example, Senator Specter or Senator Lieberman left their parties. But you know what? 
After all that consternation, after all that worrying and, and trying to figure out what does this do for the balance of power and, and how are they going to use their newfound powers and independent as both parties are trying to pull them in and so on, here's something that happened. They left power. At some point, maybe they won re-election, maybe they didn't, but at some point they either retired or lost to someone else and they're no longer in power. And for the most part, those that switch power, after all the agony of the commentators trying to figure out what it was going to mean, lost in the next election. The power doesn't last. The reign doesn't last. And so whether we're happy or not with those whom we get elected, they're not going to reign for very long. They're not going to have power for all that long. Even those that we kind of sometimes wish, oh, I wish there were term limits, they're not going to be in, in the grand scope of history for that long. So for all that jockeying, it all ends. But we start to get a hint here of something more. You see, when you, when you think about the way that Isaiah says this, he says his throne will reign eternally, it will be forever, and that could be what I, I've been describing up to this point. But we keep getting this focus, it will last, and he's going to bring in something different. And it starts to prepare us to think, Maybe what's being described here is a lasting power. It doesn't matter how great King David was, Solomon came after him. It doesn't matter that Solomon was mostly a good king, although very flawed at the same time. Rehoboam came after him. But here's someone that we can trust. I think that challenges us as we think about Jesus as the good king. Something that... that is confronting everyone since the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary. Am I trusting just any leader? Am I trusting the leaders of, of, of my city, of my state, of my country, thinking they're the ones that I can stake my hope onto? They're the ones that they're going to pull together everything for me? Is that where I'm putting my hope? Or am I putting my hope in the good king who lasts? here's the, the thing we have to confront. The best leaders that we elect, the best leaders who, who rule over us, so to speak, are going to make an awful lot of mistakes, and they're not going to sound anything like what Isaiah describes here. But Jesus does. But let's think about this a little more. Sure, we, we, we have a king, and maybe it's... They're thinking, maybe Mary's thinking, maybe those who, who hear this promise are thinking oh, he's going to establish a new line. But, but when we look at Micah chapter 4, we find that it doesn't work that way. Take a look at Micah chapter 4. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation. The Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. Here's a transition point in that promise. As Mary wrestles with what Gabriel is saying. Because you see, Gabriel is saying he's going to be the good king. He's going to be a king who brings in lasting peace. But as he's using the language that echoes Micah there as well, He's making an unmistakable promise. He's not just the good king. But that's hard. It's like looking at that invitation that doesn't say open house, 
but it doesn't say dinner and trying to figure out it has a start time and an end time. What am I to make sense of that? It brings up the question of what, what did Mary know when she heard this? She's hearing things that boggle our mind today. What did she know in that moment? What was she thinking in that moment? And I, I like, I actually love that Mary Did You Know confronts us with that question. The, the, the modern Christmas carol confronts us with that question. Not because, and some have suggested, well, it means that Mary wasn't bright. Mary wasn't catching on. I don't think that's the point at all. The point is Mary is being confronted with the very mystery of who God is. And you have to wonder, what does she know in that moment? Kathy has graciously offered to come and sing Mary, did you know? And as, as she sings it, I want you to be thinking about these questions. And imagine yourself in, in Mary's place for a moment. What would you know in that moment? What did Mary know? Kathy, would you come on up and, and share with us? Thank you. Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day walk on water? Mary, did you know that your baby boy would save your sons and daughters? Did you know that your baby boy has come to make you new? That child that you delivered will soon deliver you. Mary, did you know that your baby boy would give sight to the blind man? Mary, did you know Will your baby boy will calm the storm with his hand? Did you know that your baby boy has walked where angels trod? And when you kiss your little baby, you've kissed the face of God. Oh, Mary, did you know? Oh, Mary, did you know? The blind will see, the deaf will hear, the dead will live again. The lame will leap, the dumb will speak, the praises of the Lamb. Oh, Mary, did you know that your baby boy was Lord of all creation? Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day save the nations? Did you know that your baby boy is heaven's perfect lamb that sleeping child you're holding 
is the great I am. Oh, Mary. Mary, did you Thank you so much, Kathy, for sharing that. I, I hope as you were listening to her sing that, that maybe you tried to imagine having those questions posed to you. And, and thank you for, for, for just sharing that with us because I, I think sometimes we, we hear it and we think, well, that's a, uh, yeah, it's kind of become one of those songs we expect to hear now, right? Um, it's a, a reprieve from Mariah Carey for, for a song. And we don't really think about what it would have been like to hear what Gabriel is saying to Mary. And I, I was thinking about it as, as you were singing it, Kathy, again, and, and you start to just check off some of the things, like the blind will see, the, the, the lame will leap. In a world of modern medicine, we often still can't do those things, but maybe they don't shock us. But it was assumed those things weren't going to be reversed. And then when you go a step further and you kiss the face of God, even though there are very strong indicators, and we're going to get to them in a moment, that that's exactly what the angel Gabriel was telling Mary. Imagine that you're Mary, that you've been raised your entire life learning God's word, You've been told there's only one God. There's not a bunch of gods like the, the other religions often are talking about. He doesn't have a human form. And then you're told the one who's going to be born to you is the Son of God. And you try to wrestle with that. And I think where Mary would have started if she wrestled with that, and I'm sure she did, we're told that she pondered these things in her heart, I think the place that she would have started would have been to think, well, David was called a son of God as well. And so she would have thought, oh, the good king. And it very well could have been at first as she encountered this promise, that's where she would have stopped and not again because Mary, we're looking down on Mary or patronizing Mary, but because that's where a good Jew should have landed. And that's not anything against what they were being taught either because God had been helping them to move away from expecting to bump into all kinds of different gods for centuries because that's where they kept falling. And they finally maybe gotten to the point where they wouldn't do that. And now they're confronted. Now they're ready for a mystery, a, a genuine mystery, this mystery of the incarnation. But did Mary understand all that as the angel Gabriel appears? And I, I have to say, I think, because we struggle to understand it today, that Mary probably didn't grasp it all in that first moment either. What did she know? Well, I think when she celebrates and she sings her Magnificat, the song of praise that she sings after she comes and visits her, her cousin Elizabeth, I think what she's praising God for is that God is going to finally raise up the good king, that, the, that things will change. 
But how can things genuinely change? How can things change even if the Messiah is greater than any king who's ever lived before, if he's just going to live for a while and then die? How can the good king really make a lasting difference? And you think about your favorite politician. Maybe you can think of a politician you genuinely think was mostly a good leader. Someone, maybe you can take off the mostly even, a good leader. And then that person dies or retires and someone else gets elected and you grind your teeth thinking about that person that replaced that good leader. What good is it to raise up a good king? Unless that king's going to be different. So we look at that part of Isaiah 9-6 that we skipped over, we find out fully how different this good king is going to be. How can Jesus be truly the good king? And it's this. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Jesus isn't just the good king. And Mary's getting the first part of this here as she's encountering Gabriel. She's going to learn it over Jesus' lifetime. And I'd imagine even after. Just as the disciples were wrestling with what does it mean to follow Jesus in, in the years afterward, Mary's wrestling with what does it mean to raise up Jesus? What does that look like? Jesus is the good God. And that's what we see as we look at the second part of what Gabriel says in their conversation. It starts with the question that Mary asks. And she says, how will this be since I am a virgin? She wants to know how it's going to happen. What, what does, what's Gabriel promising here? And Gabriel goes on and says, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And here's where Gabriel is dropping a, a mystery in front of Mary. He's already said that, that Jesus is going to be known as, as God's Son. And again, they're queued up to think because they've studied the Old Testament. And this is language that's used of the descendants of David. Because just as we use it today, right? We talk about being sons and daughters of the living God. God's adopted us. They're thinking in, a, in sort of similar terms, not for all of all the people, but for those who are in the line of David, God's son. But, but the way that Gabriel describes it to Mary is the first glimpse in the crack in the, the, the riddle, as it were, because it's not the sort of thing that we can process all at once, and yet he's letting Mary into the mystery so that as she ponders it in her heart, she can start to go from, what does this mean? Here's what it means fully. Notice again what he says in verse 32. He says, He will be great and be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And there's something profound that we can scoot right past there. Because the Messiah, the, the whole thing that made the Messiah the Messiah is that the Messiah was a son of David, a descendant of David. And yet the angel doesn't start with, with that, but that he'll be called the son of the Most High. Here's the difference between the Messiah that Mary and everybody else expected and the Messiah who actually came. The Messiah they expected was the son of David, therefore the son of God, adopted by God. The Messiah who actually came was the son of God and therefore was going to be 
the son of David. You see, Jesus, the, the second person of the Trinity, the son, the son, eternal with the Father, had always been the Son of God, will always be the Son of God. But as he comes into the incarnation, he becomes also the Son of David. He's born into hu human form. And in that, he takes up the human mantle as the one who's already the divine king. Now, did Mary get that in that moment? I don't know if she would have or not, because I think probably all of us have read over what the angel Gabriel said there. And if we think, oh, the Son of God, the Son of the Most High, the reason we think oh, that's talking about Jesus' divinity is because we aren't really thinking about all the Psalms where David talks about being God's son, where the future kings of Israel and, and ultimately Judah are referred to as being God's son. It's that more subtle change. And like so much of Jesus' ministry, there's a, a cloak of mystery there as God works with us because he knows that we can't immediately understand, we can't in all of our life fully understand the mysteries of who he is and who he has been and will be. How can we? But the key thing here is the good king is the good king not just because he does better than his, his forefathers. And indeed, Jesus is a descendant of David, both through Mary and through Joseph. He's a descendant of David, but that's not what makes him ultimately the good king because the best king that would have come from that line otherwise would still die, and then a bad king would come after, and it wouldn't seem to do anything at all in the grand scheme of things. But this good king would last because he wasn't like the others. When God promises to David, your line is going to go on forever, he had a, a plot twist that David never would have anticipated in the moment, which is that not just the descendant of David after descendant of David after descendant of David would reign, but one day God himself would take on the mantle of descendant of David so that he could come down and do things the way they ultimately need to be done. He'd been preparing humanity for millennia for this in subtle, subtle ways. Because there are three different offices we often talk about Jesus fulfilling. And we've been talking about being the good king. And indeed, that was one of them. But, but if we go all the way back to Genesis 14, we would find the story of Melchizedek, who is a priest and king of the Most High God, king of Salem. And the, the remarkable thing about him is that we know very little about him. And yet Abraham, as he encounters him, recognizes that he represents the Lord and he, he tithes to him. And Melchizedek blesses him. And we're told later on in the New Testament, and we're, we, we wrestle with the mystery later in the Old Testament in, in Psalms, but we're, we see this overarching plot twist here that Jesus also takes on the mantle of Melchizedek as priest of the Most High God. And also comes as one who's foretold by the prophet of the Most High. Also in Luke chapter 1, verse 76, we, we read of the coming of John the Baptist who would foretell the coming of Jesus. And what, what are we told of him? He's the prophet of the Most High. We keep talking about Most High tonight. And if you're, maybe if you start thinking about that, well, that's kind of interesting. I, I hadn't really wrestled with that phrasing much in the past. It's obviously talking about God. But isn't it interesting here we see that term used over and over again, the same term used of Melchizedek, and then used of John the Baptist as a prophet and of Jesus as the king. What's that meant to do to show how these pieces are interconnected? 
There's lots of different phrasing that could have been used, but this is chosen to show, wait a second here, these different puzzle pieces have been sitting out there as you start to assemble them together. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the priest of the Most High God. He comes as the greater prophet that, that John calls and the, opens the way for as he for t- tells the people, get ready because he's coming, the prophet of the Most High. And he's the good king. He is the king of the Most High. These pieces come together. And like the best storyteller ever, because that's exactly who God is. You think of great storytellers. They, they leave little pieces that don't seem to seem very consequential in their story, but later on become important. And we go all the way back to Abraham and his encounter with Melchizedek. Here's a part of that story. Then, then we come a little further, or a lot further, and we get hundreds of years later, and we see David contemplating this time that a descendant of his was actually worthy of being called Lord. And what was he? He was a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And then John the Baptist comes on the scene, the prophet of the Most High. And then Jesus. We think about that question, Mary, did you know? And, and these puzzle pieces are all there, but they have to be assembled. And I, I think in the moment, what we need to see is that Mary is encountering the mystery of God just like we are today. And in that is a challenge to us because we think, well, Mary should have gotten it. It's right here. She should get it. And so we think, and part of the reason we're saying that is, well, we think we've gotten it. We got it all, so Mary should have gotten it all. But do we? Do we really understand? We understand parts we understand more as we grow in our Christian walk, as we mature in, in Christ, as we, we trust in him more and we allow his spirit to work in us more, we start to get more of it. But do we ever truly understand the mystery of just what's being asked to Mary in that song? I don't, I don't think so. Do we understand the mystery of what Gabriel is describing here, that somehow all this could come together like this? We will spend the rest of our lives trying to understand it fully. But we should be careful in that. Careful to make sure that we actually know where our, our, the border of our understanding is and also when we sort of shut it down too soon. Here's something I read that was disturbing. A couple years ago, Lifeway Research did a survey of Americans and they found that 52% of Americans said that Jesus is a great teacher but not God. 52%. 52% of people think enough of Jesus to say, he's a great teacher. And maybe that's just a knee-jerk thing. I'd like to think some of the people, most of the people, have thought about it a little bit at least, and they know a couple of things they think Jesus said at least. Maybe it's really things he said, maybe not. But in any case, they think he's a great teacher. But they haven't actually wrestled with him enough to reach the point that he's more than a great teacher. At the time that Jesus was ministering, a lot of people got the idea that maybe he could be a good king, I think for a lot of the ministry of Jesus on earth, the disciples got the idea that he could be a good king, but not that he was the good God. But here's where it gets even more painful to hear. One third, one third of evangelicals answered that Jesus was a good teacher, but not God. One third of those who say we are people of the good news who are going and proclaiming that Jesus has come to save us don't actually think that Jesus is God. And if those who, 
who generally speaking, as they're being surveyed, to try, you know, they try to ask different questions to figure out who, the, because people aren't very accurate in their own labels of themselves. When the surveyor came down to the point to label them and said they're evangelicals, the people who in theory have been wrestling with the Bible and applying it to their lives, and that's why they're claiming that name, a third of them don't even know that Jesus is God. Why is that? And that's why I say we need to be humble and we need to be careful because here's the challenge for us as the church today. First, we need to wrestle with what we're actually thinking about as far as Jesus. What, what, and sometimes it's not even what we're sort of thinking about at a conscious level, but what are we subconsciously thinking about Jesus? What are we, what's coming out in our, in our words that we're not even thinking about? And how often is it that we can fall into language that implies that Jesus is somehow lesser? How often is it and I hear this time and again, and I try to catch myself if I do it. I, I'm sure I, I do it anyway. But when we're just talking, we get sloppy. And someone who doesn't know who Jesus is yet would get the impression that there's God the Father, there's God, and then there's Jesus. And I think the first thing that we're challenged to is be humble in the way that we approach Jesus and make sure that in our language we're careful and also that we're willing to correct ourselves when we realize we haven't been careful in describing who Jesus is. That's the first thing. The other, though, that we need to think about in that is what are we communicating as the church? Are we communicating that we genuinely believe that Jesus is both the good king and good God? Because that's our calling. That's what people should be hearing more than anything else because trusting in Jesus if they think that Jesus is just a great teacher, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't save anyone to trust in some human that had some good things to say. What saves people is trusting in the Prince of Peace, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. That's what saves people. That's what gives people hope. Who is Jesus for you tonight? Who is Jesus for those around you tonight? Who is Jesus for those you're going to have spend Christmas with and go to office parties with? Would they say that Jesus is a good teacher? Would they say that Jesus is God? And may in everything that we're doing, we wrestle with this and we seek to have the Holy Spirit call us more and more into understanding who Jesus is. It doesn't matter if we have it all right, but what we should be doing in this moment is making sure that God is correcting us and drawing us closer. Because none of us fully can comprehend the mystery. But what more important thing can we possibly do at Christmas time than to help people to understand the mystery a little bit more? I think sometimes as Christians we fail this by implying that we're trusting in earthly leaders and putting all our hope in earthly leaders. And if that's what we're doing, then people say, well, why should I even trust Jesus as a good teacher? But sometimes we treat Jesus just like a storebook of Proverbs, as someone who was wise like Solomon. And he was wiser than Solomon because he gifted Solomon with his wisdom. And we start to, to sort of sell him short and not as the one who is ultimately the king of heaven. But this Christmas, may we convey that hope to all those around us. That the one that we're waiting for to return is the good king. He's the good God. He's with you and he's with me. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, we, we confront this and as we really think about things that Gabriel describes to Mary, 
They're hard for us to wrap around having the whole story. May we not jump so quickly to thinking that we have everything down, that, that somehow in that we actually sell the truth of your gospel short. We make Jesus less than he is. Father, we praise you and thank you that you have sent your son to be amongst us, to live, to suffer, to die, and to triumph over death for us. As we wrestle with the mystery of who he is, as we join with Mary pondering these things in our heart, would you apply more deeply to us the truth? Deeply that there is one good ruler, one good leader who will make all things right and no other. And that the only reason that there can be even one who would do that is because he is indeed your son. And that in the mystery of who you are, that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we worship one God. Lord, would you help us to rest in the mystery tonight? As we look at the uncertainties of life, of our individual lives, and wonder, how do we make sense of things? We know that that our Savior will return and that everything will be made right because he is the one who authored the very foundations of the world that we can trust in him. And it is in his precious name that we pray. Amen.